0: So Romans chapter 2, verse 1, I titled this message, Those those Who Are Inexcusable. And that's what we'll be looking at today. We're going to do sort of an introduction a little bit to chapter 2. That will be where we begin. And in chapter 2, verse 1, it says, Therefore you are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are. Are who judge? For in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge, practice the same things. I let you guys know that when we started in this book of Romans, I did let you know that we're going to dive a little deep. We're going to go through Romans uh, three twenty, and we're going to go through some dark things that he's talking about. We had to solidify all of that up front with justification. And so he's talking about a man who's inexcusable or a person who's inexcusable. The book of Romans, it's the preeminent, it has been called the preeminent doctrinal work in the New Testament. And it surpasses all others. It's distinguished above all other books. What distinguishes it though? The fact that it's one of the greatest works of doctrine and theology, and it's so rich and it's so deep, and we have the privilege of the depth of discovery to move from the shallow end of our knowledge into the deep end of the pool of grace. I have to confess, as I have been studying these things, I've been studying the book of Romans on my own to prepare for these messages. I've been attempting to do it, academically so that I can come up here and give you some insight maybe or something that you've never heard before. And it's hard for me to switch over to the academic side and forget the application. We have to have application. I like what D. Martin Lloyd-Jones said. He said, we must always put ourselves under the word and look up to it and listen to it as it speaks to us. We must never study the Bible academically never become theoretical. That has been the curse of theological seminaries. Men who have gone in full of life have come out dead and all because of this academic interest in the scriptures. So beware of it. We can't forget the richness of the grace, the richness of the application. And I think sometimes in our humanness, we wanna study in such a way, we wanna read in such a way, we wanna present in such a way that we forget the practical side and we got to be aware of that. Do you remember the overarching theme of Romans? The overarching theme is grace. What's wonderful about that for the believer, for the born again Christian, is that's just the start of our relationship and walk with Christ. That grace, that unmerited divine assistance through Jesus Christ as savior, salvation, and the Bible tells us there's nothing new. Everything we need is in here in the Bible. But what are we What are we not to do with the Bible? Well, we're not to add or take away, right? That's what the Bible tells us. Deuteronomy 4.2 You shall not add to the word which I command you, nor take from it that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you. Revelations 22, 18 and 19 For I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to these things, God will add to them plagues that are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of this book of this prophecy, God shall take away from the book of life, uh, his name from the book of life, from the holy city and from the things which are written in this book. And some people might say, well, the New Testament was added. We have no time to review that today, but if you'd like, you can go to Titus chapter 2. It's up on our website. We deal with that issue. Talk about how the 66 books were chosen. See, these 66 books of the Bible cannot be widened. They can't be extended. So there's only one way to go, and we have to go deep. We have to dive into these pages, allow them to come out and change us. I think of a, a swimming pool. When you walk into somebody's backyard, think of the design of it and it's set in stone. You can't widen it. I suppose you can if you came up and chopped it all up and you know replaced it and we're gonna get somebody who said, oh yeah, you can, but you understand what I'm saying. Now, can we agree that in most pools there's a shallow end and a deep end? Of course we can agree to that. And that most of the time when we think of pools, It's on a cool, refreshing, uh, it gives us cool, refreshing water in a hot summer day. That's the way we commonly put it. Maybe you remember learning how to swim or teaching someone to swim. I remember teaching our kids to swim. And I remember the shock on their face when they would come up and they taught us to take the baby and push them backwards. um, Not with their face forward. But when they're faced backwards and they'd come out of the water all shocked and it wakes us up and they think, yeah, I'm in the pool. But sometimes we, as in our spiritual lives, we do the same thing, but we remain there. We remain in the shallow end thinking, well, at least I'm in the pool. But what discovery though, when we tread the water in the deep end, we begin looking around, treading the water, oh, look, I can do this and I can look to this side and that side and Look at me, I'm over here, and that's a great place to be. And we can't widen that pool, but we can get into the deep end. But the problem with that, too, is we just tend to tread on the surface sometimes. We can't stay there either. We have to come and explore because there's more. There's more in the depths of these pages. We can't stay there. Many times we get into the water Maybe even to the deep end, but we remain there. We don't put our heads under. We don't dive deep. Just like the Bible, we can't extend the ends of the Bible. We can't add to the pages of it, but we can dive deep into the pages. And in those pages, we continue to see hints of evidence of the deeper truths. Because we all believe that we're saved. But do we really know it? Do we really understand it? Do we really understand what it means? I don't know if you've heard about this new species of deep sea jellyfish that was discovered in Monterey Bay. I was just reading about it. It's called the Atola Reynoldsi and it lives 10,000 feet below surface. If I did the math correctly, which I don't know that I did because they did it uh, uh, in other metrics, but 10,000 feet below the surface And it lives in what is called the midnight zone of the ocean. And you can only see it if there's more light on it. Now, how would you know to even look for this new species? How did they even know? Because in 2014, they saw evidence of it. And because there was evidence of it, they kept diving deep to research it. And when they discovered it, they now know what they knew. They knew it was there. But they now know because they see not only the evidence, but they've seen it. They've seen it for themselves. They've seen it with their eyes. And we get to see it with our spiritual eyes, at Christ, what He did for us. In 1 Corinthians 13, 12, it says, For now we see in a mirror dimly, and we only know in part. But does that, does that mean we just sit back and just say, Well, that's what the Bible says. I know in part, and I just understand that I'm saved and I'm just going to remain there. No, we ask for more light, the depths of discovery. We want to dive deep. You may be wondering, well, I have Jesus as my Lord and Savior, so what else do I need? What else is there? Well, we continue to pursue. As He pursued us and we're saved, now we pursue Him. And why do we pursue Him? We pursue Christ for more assurance, which gives us more emboldenment so that we can continue in this life of victory. How many Christians do you know that walk around saying, I'm saved, but then they mope about everything in life? How many of us do it? I'm the same way. I do the same thing. I mope about things, even though I know what I have and what I can give away. It's because we don't understand our victory in Christ, maybe. We got to continue in that victory. Hosea 4, 6 says, My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. That's when Satan can come in and just start yanking us all over the place. Many born-again Christians are walking around with this banner of victory over them, but as if they don't know it's even there you walk around like that i walk around like that sometimes is it because we're walking around with lack of knowledge lack of what jesus has actually done for us think about thomas for a moment we know him as who doubting thomas we're watching these episodes of the show called the chosen don't know if you've seen any of them but there's an episode at the wedding of Cana and Thomas's characters being set. I thought they did a really good job about with it. He was supposed to be one of the guys delivering the wine. And he constantly is asking, do we have enough wine? I'm afraid we're not going to have enough wine. And it turns out that they don't have enough wine. And that's what Jesus does this miracle. And they show him doubting that they're going to have this wine over and over and over, just setting him up. For what you know, you and I know what that, that happens. But what happened to Thomas when Jesus died? He's in disbelief. This is what the show is setting him up for. After Jesus had risen, Thomas is told about it. Do you remember what Thomas said? Turn with me for a moment to John chapter 20. John chapter 20, as you hold your finger on Romans, we'll come back to it. But John chapter 20, verse 24, starting at verse 24 through 29, it tells us, Now Thomas, called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples therefore said to him, We have seen the Lord. So he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the print of the nails And Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. We look at this as doubting Thomas. But isn't it amazing to you that Jesus did not turn Thomas away? He didn't give him this huge rebuke. He didn't tell him, Thomas, you suck at this Christian walk. You need to go back and read this over and over again and let it settle in your heart. No, he accommodated Thomas. He did tell him, "Blessed are those who have not seen yet believe." But how often do we turn to this and 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 we accuse people of you don't you have all these doubts about your salvation, but rather saying to them, look at what Jesus actually did. He accommodated him. Imagine now, he accommodated him. He said, hey, Thomas, look here, look here. I know you doubt, but you know what? I'm right here in front of you. And I'm going to accommodate you. I'm going to let you do what you've asked to do. So amazing. Can you imagine now that he's seen that evidence, it's proven evidence how that emboldened him? How emboldened he must have become. This is what when we dive into the scriptures deeply and we understand what is actually happening, that legal term of justification, what it does for us. You and I haven't seen Jesus physically. If you have, then I would tell you you're lying. (laughs) We have believed without seeing him. But we've seen him spiritually. But it doesn't stop there. We didn't just add Jesus to our lives and remain in the shallow end of the pool. And if we have, well, then we better start getting into the deep end. See, as we go into the depths of the pages, it is as if Jesus is standing right there in front of us saying, Reach in, look at the proof. And I'm telling you, that's what the book of Romans is doing here. Look at the proof. Reach in. Has the Lord told you that? Has He done that to you lately as you're searching for Him? Son, daughter, I'm right here. Reach in. See, for you and I, justification is the greatest news ever. And it's the best news. But guess what? It's only the start of our Christian walk. It's only the beginning of it. I don't know about you, but blessed discovery is happening in my life as I read through this and this is what this is one of the reasons I wanted to do this book. So it would continue to solidify and I want to share those things with you. I am coming to know deeply what I already knew. I now know what I've known. You understand what I'm saying? I now know What I've known. It's like those infomercials. But wait, there's more. But wait, there's more. I'm justified. But wait, there's more. It's inheritance. Romans chapter 8 tells us that we are co-heirs with Christ. We're going to have everything. But we just remain here. There's evidence of more. We dive into His grace. He sheds more light, it emboldens us. It helps us when doubts come. It helps us when I sin. I sin? Yes. We sin still. Why? Because we are in this body. And guess what? That sin, when we get into that sin, you know what I'm talking about. It gives you that quick charge. You're in that sin, whatever it might be. It's a quick charge. But when that guilt begins to settle, when that guilt comes, that guilt is like that handle for Satan to grip onto and just pull me and yank me around. If I don't know the helmet of salvation is on, if I don't know that banner of victory is over me, then I'm going to allow him to do that all day long. But see, this is the grace, knowledge, of that justification, the grace that disarms the handle of doubt. See, this deep knowledge is what helps me walk through this life with joy. Proverbs 15:24: "The way of life winds upward for the wise, that he may turn away from hell below. Do we understand this? Do we understand that we have an ever-increasing life of victory. We're in victory, but it's ever-increasing. It's ever increasing. We don't just add Jesus to our lives and then that's it. I mean, don't misunderstand me. There's nothing else we have to do. And we'll get into that as we go through Romans. We'll add some balance to this life of grace. We'll add balance. But we get to live an ever increasing life of victory. And that's what this discovery is doing. And as Paul shared how the world was in decline because of sin, as we went through chapter 1, You and I, as believers in Christ, we're on the other side of that. As the world is on a downward tumble, we're on an upward swing. Isn't that amazing? What great news that is. Going from victory to victory, and it's ever increasing. It's ever increasing. It's like being in school, starting in grammar school or grade school, all the way up through college. It's ever increasing. You're learning more and more. Same thing here, but spiritually. I can't and you cannot extend the Bible. You know what? If we extend the Bible, if we add to the Bible, you know all that does? It just makes it longer and more shallow with men's knowledge. But when we dive deep into this discovery, the truths that are already there, just waiting for you and I to find them, The Bible says, Proverbs 2, that His words and His commands, if sought after as for silver and hidden treasures, we will find understanding and the knowledge of God. And grace, justification in Christ, disarms the handle of doubt that Satan often grips. We don't add to the Bible, but discover through the Bible. That's why I'm excited to go through this. So we come to this verse as an introduction, chapter uh, chapter 2, verse 1, and it says, Therefore you are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are who judge, for from whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself, for you who judge practice the same things. The word therefore, that is the key word here in this chapter that opens the door to the entire chapter. It tells us that there is a continuation of thought from what was just said. What was just said? Well, he just addressed the heathen pagan world where we can all sit back and go, well, that makes sense. They're in declension. They should be judged. That's what happens when you mess around with sin. You're messed up. Obviously, that's what's going to happen to you. But then Paul turns to another group to address them. And there is some kind of man he's talking about who is inexcusable. But who's the man? Who's the person? Who's the type of person? Who is the person being addressed to? Whether it's Jew or Gentile, which he does get into, it's the one who judges. The one who judges. We are told here that Paul is writing through a style known as diatribe. Now, it's not the meaning that's been taken on in today's society of a bitter and abusive speech or writing. But it's in the way the ancients used it, a prolonged discourse, a composition in which questions or objections are put into the mouth of an imagined critic in order to be answered or demolished. What is Paul doing here? Paul is having a conversation with himself. You ever do that? And he's talking about, well, what if they ask this? Well, I'll say this. And then this question comes up, and he's thinking about this person in the crowd. And so he's looking at all these points from different arguments, and he's answering the questions up front. And that's how he's writing this letter. And he's pulling apart every argument so that there could be none. So we imagine for a moment, Paul, the Apostle Paul in Corinth, dictating this letter, getting ready to set out to Palestine to deliver a collection in the church there. He wants to go to Rome. He wants to draft a letter. It's going to be sent by Phoebe. All of this third heaven knowledge that he has just coming flooding into his mind. Maybe he's pacing back and forth. And this doctrinal genius is coming out and Tertius, who we read about in chapter 16 is working hard to keep up writing about, you know, writing what he's saying. Can you imagine his hands trying to his, the tightening of his hands, trying to write all this down. He didn't have a computer to type it all up. They didn't have shorthand. Maybe they did. I don't know, but Paul's pacing, talking to himself, asking these questions and answering them. And all the time, his thoughts are racing ahead of his words so that his words have to leap over this gap to catch up with his thoughts. All of this stuff is happening. He's dealt with the salutation, the introduction to who am I writing and why am I writing? That blessed truth right up front, justification through faith. Then he goes through this diagnosis of sin, this universal sin that when not dealt with leads to declension, a terrible society first identifying it through the unchanged pagan society, which leaves us with this image of, well, of course, that's obvious. That's what's going to happen when you live that lifestyle. And now he's dealing with a person who is inexcusable. But who is inexcusable? The ones whose hearts judge others by the false standards. Well, that's obvious. That's the way they're living. That's what's going to happen. And they should get what they deserve. But we forget about the other side of that. Everybody's guilty. The first three chapters deal with this. And they address every single argument known to man. This is what we get to dive into. Every argument is put down in these chapters. The Apostle Paul is brilliant in this way. But how many of us really study in that fashion? Before any of his contemporaries can applaud him, Jew or Stoic at the time, he addresses them right up front. These were the ones looking down the nose on everyone else. Look at my life. Look at how I live. And you can just see Paul working out the argument in his mind, and he imagines someone, as the letter's being read, someone shouting, yes, get them, Paul. Tell them off. They've caught his attention now as if he's standing in a room and he's imagining the scenario. And now he turns to them and he deals with them. Now they get his attention. It's like us, Lord, get that person. Look what they did to me. And now the Lord turns to you and gets your attention. Do you want that kind of attention from the Lord? I don't want that kind of attention from the Lord. See, The Apostle Paul, he's a Jew of promise, of birth, a Roman citizen by place of birth, a sinful heathen by being born into human citizenship. He's a man of all these different places, but now, most importantly, a born-again believer in Jesus Christ. So he's coming at this letter from all angles, and he's saying there's somebody who's inexcusable, inexcusable. We talked about justification and it being a legal term in the past. Inexcusable is also a legal term. And it means you have no case. You have no argument. Your evidence that you're trying to bring is inadmissible. It cannot be accepted. In fact, it's even more than that. There is no rationale for your line of thinking so it's impossible to accept it. It is utterly inadmissible. That's what it means, this word inexcusable. Utterly inadmissible. You can't bring it. The jury cannot see that. Done. It's inexcusable. The bird's eye view of this chapter is that the Jew is saved because he is a Jew. Paul deals with that in verse one through 16. Then he deals with their argument that they are saved by the law. uh, Verses 17 through 24. Then he deals with the arguments about the circumcision in verse 25. See, Paul calls out the Jew first and then the Gentile. We see it throughout these verses here when we get to them. Paul calls out indicative Pharisaical Jewish attitudes. And not only that, the Stoic moralist view. That was there at the time. The Jew rested on the fact that he was a Jew. Therefore, he's saved. He doesn't need anything else. I'm the chosen person. I'm chosen, therefore, I'm good. And time and time again in the Gospels, we see that attitude, that pharisaical attitude of looking down on others. That is the position of the Jew at the time. Look at how they looked at the Samaritans or anybody else. It was Jew, then Gentile. The Gentiles were there so that God had something to burn. That's what it was. That's how they viewed it. That's the position. The Jew thought they were an entirely different category altogether. They are those who judge others. This is the oh man Paul is referring to. We also know in Rome... As we've talked about before, the church was full of converted, not only Jews, but Gentiles. So this old man Paul is referring to is also possibly the Stoic moralist at the time. In its simplest form, being a Stoic meant uh, it says that you only flourish by means of living an ethical life. So it was the same thing for the Jew, trying to live a life of ritualistic works they were trying to live a morally ethical life men like who the founder of stoicism was was zeno of citium men like epictetus and seneca who were paul's contemporaries at the time this definition stoicism teaches the development of self-control and fortitude as a means of overcoming destructive emotions The philosophy holds that becoming a clear and unbiased thinker allows one to understand the universal reason of things. Stoicism's primary aspect involves improving the individual's ethical and moral well-being. Everybody else not living like that was called a dog tied to a cart and compelled to go wherever it goes. That's how they viewed people. Stoicism was originally called Xenonism, which it was named after the founder. But the name changed to Stoicism because of the ancient Greek, it's called painted porch or the porch. That's what the word actually means. The porch. Where did that come from? Well, it was named after a colonnade decorated with mythical and historical battle scenes on the north side of the Agora in Athens, where Zeno and his followers gathered to discuss their ideas. And sometimes it's referred to as the philosophy of the porch. So it's literally these old men gathered together on their ideas above everybody else on a hill, looking down on everybody else's life. That's literally what's happening. When Paul says, therefore... It is the key to the entire chapter. Now we see the subtleness of it. We see the subtleness of it. He's continuing his thought as he turns to another group. those who judge others for the way they live outwardly, even though they are living the same way uh, they are living the same way inwardly, they are without excuse. So Paul's painting a picture of the vileness and foulness of sin in chapter one, which you and I would say, well, that's obvious. Those are obviously the things that are going to happen. And now we see the subtleness of sin, the subtleness of, thank God. I'm not like that. The subtleness of I'm all right. I don't need anything. I'm not that bad. The subtleness of at least I'm not like them. But the fact is, as Paul already pointed out, who's guilty. We're all guilty. The subtlety of it comes in through different avenues. And I want to give you four examples of those avenues and then their remedy. You see, when we come to the word of God, many times we can come with our prejudices. Number one, we can come with our prejudices. That's our bias. That's our preconceived idea. We introduce our bias into the scripture. Then we change the scripture rather than it changing us. Remember, the Jews were God's own people and they had the scriptures. They had the word that foretold of Messiah, yet they put Messiah to death. And we can come to God's word with our own prejudices. If I'm a Calvinist, I'll approach the scriptures different than, in our, uh, than Arminianism. I'm chosen. There's nothing you can do. And you may not be the chosen one. But the Bible says it's for all of us. If you believe you can lose your salvation, you'll read scripture differently than if you believe in eternal security. You'll pick apart. If I believe in pre-tribulation, mid-tribulation, post-tribulation, I will come at it from those different angles. And then what do we get? We get division. We get segregation in the church. We get sectarianism, which the Bible clearly denounces. We have to come to it with an open mind, open heart, learn from it. Whatever it may say, we have to sit there and let it change us. And we have to beware of any prejudice when we approach God's word. Another subtlety, too. number two, is applying truth being taught to others, but not to ourselves. That's when you're sitting there and you hear something great and you think, yes, preach it. I can't wait for so-and-so to hear this. I can't wait to give them this message so that they can hear it and they can change but we never examine ourselves. We're always examining the lives of somebody else and we're blind to our own sins. We want to protect ourselves. We don't want to admit that we need change. We think we're all good. We think we're done. We think we're set. And we're always sitting there listening to God's word on behalf of others. Do you ever do that? I do it. Oh man. So, so should hear this message, let me send this to everybody. And have I really let it settle in my own heart? We can't protect ourselves from God's word. We can't shelter ourselves from God's word. We must let it penetrate our hearts and let it sink in. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones again. He says, quite right, we say, these abominable sins. We see them as we walk along the streets We read about them and we are impatient with these people. We feel they ought to be blasted out of existence. We see it so clearly as applies to others, but never in the case of ourselves. That's the subtlety of applying truth to other people, but not to ourselves. Thirdly, subtlety of sin creeps in when we deny the foundational doctrine of salvation. We can replace justification by faith in our lives. Do you ever do that? It's his perfect work, but we can replace it with something else. How about, I was born in the United States, so obviously I'm a Christian. I vote Republican, so obviously I'm a Christian. If you vote the other way, you can't be Christian. How many times have we heard that over and over? It's amazing. It blows me away. How do you determine that? Or I was born in a Christian home. Or my wife's Christian. My husband is Christian. Kids are Christians. So I must be Christians. Or look how I'm living. I must be a Christian. Check me out. We run away from the doctrine of justification by faith only when we rely upon anything or anyone except the Lord Jesus Christ and His perfect work. I do not care what it is. The sin of moralism or living a good life or being respectable as justification, this is what is being denounced here. And you and I can get caught up in all of that. Look at my life as compared to somebody else's. Obviously, I'm a believer in Jesus Christ. And they can't be because we're told to look at the fruit of somebody's life. But how do we know sometimes where they're at in their walk with Christ? Maybe they're not at the same place we are. Maybe they just accepted the Lord. And we're already there judging them. Have you ever done that? Oh, I've never done that. I'm accepting of everybody. I've (laughs) I've, I've done that plenty of times. Plenty of times. Oh, that person just cut me off and they got a Christian sticker. Look at that. Do you, Do we not know maybe that they've had a bad day? What are they going through? Have some empathy towards them? I say all this so easily from the pulpit. Easy. But man, when we're out there living in this world, it's tough. The subtlety of sin. These subtleties. This is why it's so important that we understand and we be anchored in justification. We will get in the next chapters to the evidences of the Christian walk, which is gonna be amazing. But we can't run away from the doctrine of justification by faith. We can't rely on anything else. Then we have the separation of doctrine and life where our life does not match up to who we say we are on the inside. Thinking I'm saved and then living any way I want because I said the words, I went up to the altar call, but then we go on living as if there were never any change at all in our lives. You know, if you're a genuine believer in Christ and it's happened to me and it still happens to me, you know what's going to happen to you? When you continue down that road, you're going to be convicted. The Lord is going to rebuke you. You're going to fall to your knees and you're going to ask for his forgiveness. If that does not happen, then we must examine. Am I a believer? We can't base it off of, I have confessed it with my mouth. I said the words, but it has to be believed in the heart. There has to be a heart change because in Matthew 7:21 it says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. And Romans 10 9, that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Well, I said the words. I believe it in my heart. But a heart means the center of our being, all of our faculties, mind, Inner self and character, that's what they attributed it to at that time. That's what it means. It includes decisions of our inner being that establish who we really are. These are the subtleties of sin, and I'm certain we can talk about many, many more. But what is the remedy for these things in our lives, for these subtleties I think it's all summed up in Psalm 51, verses 16 and 17. Psalm 51, 16 and 17. For you do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You take no pleasure in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. A contrite heart, a low heart, it's a crushed heart. I'm crushed, Lord. It's a lowly crushed heart that God can look upon and pays attention to. As a believer, there's always going to be critics that point out our flaws. Oh, I saw what you did. Oh, I saw how you acted. There's always going to be that. And then when that happens, we begin to feel ashamed, convicted. But when we understand that we're justified, when we understand that we're right standing with God, when Satan comes and begins to bring all the guilt that comes with that and grabs hold of that handle to shake us around, we can stand back and say, yeah, I'm a sinner, but I'm in right standing. God, forgive me. Do we do that or do we just think of ourselves as ashamed? See, when we have the right understanding, we're going to know where we're at with the Lord. And those things that we do, we're not going to want to do anymore, even though we do them. Hey, Paul addresses that too in the book of Romans. Can't wait. But we have to ask ourselves, are there any subtleties of sin in our lives right now? Are we up on the porch walking back and forth, talking about looking down at our noses at other people. They don't believe like I do. They don't walk like I do. Look at me. The Jew and the Stoics said they were good, that they didn't need anything. One said, I'm chosen. Doesn't matter how I live. The other said, look how I live, so I must be chosen. Do we do that? Both were wrong. Both of them are wrong. Salvation is not based on any of those things. We can't grasp it. Can you grasp that? What do you mean? Salvation is not based on any of those. It's based on faith in Jesus Christ. When the heart is right, then the the works match the inner life. It comes out. It exudes. It overflows. This is the regenerated person. And we have to ask ourselves, you and I, today, what's our salvation based on today? We'll get to how we're supposed to walk and what our lives are to look like. But justification by faith in Christ is where we need to anchor ourselves. Paul told us the gospel. The gospel is the power unto salvation. The gospel. Not anything we do, not anything we say. The gospel is the power unto salvation. When we open our mouths to share with somebody else, it is the good news, it is what Jesus did that saves. Not anything we do. Sure, our lives can deter people, can push people away, can begin to make them question when we've done wrong things. We'll get to those things, but right now justification through faith in Jesus Christ. See, if it's anything other than justification by faith in Jesus Christ, it is what? It is a false salvation. False. We, you and I, have to be careful not to be the old man who's inexcusable. We have to Remember, we're justified through Christ. Only, that's it, done deal. And that interchange will come out in the outward life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, again for this time, for this day. And Jesus, if there's anything in our lives, Lord, that's inexcusable, If we're living a life, Father, of pretense, trying to live one way outwardly, but the inner life, Lord, is just torn up. Or maybe we're changed already, Lord, but our lives, Lord, haven't exuded those things, hasn't shown those things. Or maybe right now, Lord, the guilt of our sin is overwhelming, Father. And we're living in such a way, Jesus, where we feel condemned. Although we've accepted you truly, and we believe with all of our heart, Lord, sometimes we feel so guilty and ashamed. Remind us, Jesus, that we are right with you. And we need to repent, Lord, and we need to turn from those things. And Jesus, sometimes there's those, Lord, as we will get through this chapter, Father, who are in deep sin and that your word brings conviction and a realization that we are in sin. And those who have never accepted you, we pray, Lord, that they would believe in their heart and confess with their mouth, with all their inner being. And Lord, accept you as Lord and savior. We ask you, Lord, all of these things in the name of Jesus. And we all said, amen.